This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, internationally renowned fashion designer Diane von Furstenberg comes to NYPL for a conversation with Rhonda Garlick, award-winning scholar and author of Mademoiselle, Coco Chanel, and the Pulse of History. Together, von Furstenberg and Garlick discuss success, women taking the lead, and what it means to be a fashion icon. And this is Coco. <laughs> wow, good evening. Thank you all for coming. And uh, it is a great pleasure and an honor to be here with someone I've admired for much of my life, Diane von Furstenberg. And thank you especially to the New York Public Library and to my old friend, Paul Holdengraber, whom I've known <coughs> for decades now. And it's a pleasure to see him in this place where I also more or less grew up doing my homework and to be back in this uh, guys is especially terrific. I, I just wanted to begin by saying I did not mean to write a biography of Coco Chanel, um, and since there are 85 other biographies of Coco Chanel, anyone would agree that it was maybe ill-advised. What I meant to do was write a book about Chanel's costume work. She spent 30 years costuming theater, drama, ballet, film, very successfully. So I was dutifully doing that research when I started looking at hundreds of thousands of photographs, and I realized all her friends, her family, people she didn't even know, all of us here today, many of us anyway, were wearing something that was either invented or popularized or um, modernized by Coco Chanel. So in a sense, it turned out that we were all in a drama costumed by Coco Chanel, and I decided a biography was more in keeping with the theatrical nature of her career. And then I realized that biography is theater, and it's fitting that we have the empty chair for Coco tonight, which I, I thought about as a weird combination of a seance and a Passover Seder. Um, <laughs> Because there is something mystical about getting into the skin of another person, it's like putting on a character, biography is, but fashion is also really theatrical. And Diane's book is called The Woman I Wanted to Be, and that's about emulation. Well, maybe I, sh I should say that you wrote a biography, and I wrote an autobiography. Uh, I didn't mean to actually write it, but I wanted to write my mother's story mm. uh, because my mother had a had a interesting story to the fact that at age 22 she was a prisoner of war. She was arrested by the Gestapo and she went to Auschwitz first and then Ravensbrück and another camp. So she spent, at the age of t uh, 22, 13 months in the death camps of uh, Nazi Germany. 
But she did not die, and she survived, even though at the end of it, she survived because it was the end of the war, and she was, at that time, she was 49 pounds. And uh, she wasn't meant to survive, but she did. And she got back to Belgium, where she lived, where her parents were. And, uh, and her mother fed her little by little, and so she gained her weight, and uh, her fiancé came back from Switzerland, and they decided that they, w they got married, and the doctor said, okay, you can get married, but you can absolutely have no children for at least five years, because you just won't handle it, and uh, your child probably will not be normal. Well, nine months later, I was, <laughs> I was born, and I was not normal. Uh, and, uh, and my mother used to say, I was born on New Year's Eve, and my mother every New Year's Eve would write me a note, and she would say, God saved me so that I can give you life. And by giving you life, you brought my life back. You are my flag of freedom. And I always knew, I mean, you know, it was clear that I knew that, and it's clear that I behaved as such. But when my mother passed away, um, well, when I started to write the book was, she passed away 15 years ago, so it was about 10 years ago. Um, you know, when you have a strong mother, you kind of always have a shield. Yes, yes, she's always right. Yes, yes. But then when she is no longer there, you let go and uh, you don't have a shield anymore. And I realized what a strong impact she had on me and how my, how, what a strong woman she was. And so I wanted to write the story, and then my father also um, wrote his... Uh, my father died with Alzheimer at the end, so when he started to lose his memory, he started to write the book of his life. And so I have that, and I have all these letters. I mean, I just have an enormous amount of things. And uh, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, unbeknownst of me, gave, um, did a whole research on both my parents, and I got this huge box, and because the German and the Swiss kept everything, I mean, I found out things that I absolutely didn't know. So I wanted to write about that, and about my mother, and about my father, and about how they met, and all of that. And by writing that, it just so clearly explained who I am. So it is about my parents, but it's also about who I am, and, and why I became who I am is very much because of the parents that I am, that I had. So writing a biography, I realized, and, and, the, and an autobiography is very different. Actually, someone is, has written a biography about me that's coming out in a few months, and I happen to, I just read it. And um, it's, it's, it's okay. I mean, she likes me very much, so it's okay. <laughs> but it's, um, I'm so glad I wrote mine first. <laughs> because I wrote how I felt, you know. And, uh, and with a biography, but it's different also if you write a biography about somebody who's alive, because you could get, if it depends who you talk to, then all of a sudden you have a lot of information. You learn an enormous amount, and yet I think 
all biography is really about partly the author too, and it's a dialogue, which is why I think we have. We have uh, yeah. It's about projection partly and a, and a relationship. Right. So but I wrote your. I read a lot of books on Chanel, and I, I'm not quite sure why, but I'm always intrigued. And your book on Chanel was the very best I ever read. Well, thank you. That's high and praise indeed. Oh, thank you. And I really, I really, I really, really enjoyed it. Well, that is a great praise from you. Thank you. And um, as you know, because we talked a little bit about this, in many ways, your life and your career are similar to Chanel's in that you both became iconic figures whose look is instantly recognizable. In your book, you mentioned DNA, a style DNA. And I think the only other designer, quickly, if you think about it, who has that kind of immediacy is Chanel. Um, and yet your lives are obviously extremely different. I wonder, um, how aware have you been throughout your career of this great resonance you have with uh, her life? Okay, so growing up, I didn't have much Chanel didn't mean that much to me because she was still alive, but it didn't mean very much. So, and I wasn't particularly interested in fashion at first. So she was, I knew who Chanel was, you know, Chanel suit and, 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 and then, uh, but she existed. There was this Chanel existed, here she is. And, She's always and around. then at the age of 20, then I came to America, I started to work, I was successful very, very young, very early, and at 28 I was on the cover of Newsweek, which at the time, Newsweek, we had no CNN, we had no, you know, no Twitters, nothing, so, you know, Newsweek and Time were like a big deal, and they put me on the cover of, uh, of, um, of Newsweek at the age of 28, and they said, most, mar Dan von Furstenberg, dress designer, most marketable, something since Coco Chanel. And that was the first time that I got associated with you. And, <laughs> uh, and so I got associated with, with, with her. And then, you know, went along. And so that kind of stayed with me very often. I'm very, very people, you know, quotes, requotes. So I've often been associated with her, with you. And, uh, but then I started to read about Chanel, and, and I read many times, and I know a lot of things, and whatever. But when I read your book, um, I, 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 I couldn't believe how many similarities there were actually, you know, both, I mean, first of all, where I identify so much with her is, is the very source, you know, how humiliated she was, as, as, as a young girl, and so how much she wanted to venge. And, uh, you know, I really understood the, all that part so, so well. And then the jersey, you know, and uh, uh, so, you know, along the way, there's a lot, a lot of similarities. Now, there are things that are not similar, you know, I mean, apparently she was, you know, um, working for the Gestapo and, yes. and, and all and of that. But, <laughs> That's a big difference. But, <laughs> but I somehow long reading your book, I really thought that she may have gotten involved with the Gestapo 
trying to save her nephew, who I believe, and I think you believe, I do. was her son. It's true. And, and so you, you, you then sympathize very much with that and, and, you know, whatever. So, but the thing, so there are two things that I relate mostly with you, Coco, is the beginning of your life, how you you answered those humiliate you know she was in the in the world that wasn't hers and and this and the humiliation and then she decided you know what I'm going to dress them you know and so I really relate to that so that early part but I'm also so extraordinarily proud and excited for you that hundred years later the brand is becomes is still so relevant and so modern and so edgy and all of that and i like that and i wonder why is it why is it with her, with with chanel and not so much another brand this is the question i wanted no, to I, ask i know her I, and but you. i know the answer it's because there was a real spirit and because at the end the truth is we make and sell a dream but of course if it's but it's not a dream that's empty it's a dream of being she became the woman she wanted to be well not entirely and that's something that i think is quite different from you because i think you are a more self-actualized person uh, just from what i know of your book and talking to you and you became a princess at a very young age, and that's a royal title, and it's something that Coco Chanel, as you know, longed for all of her life. And you say we're selling a dream in the fashion world, and I think that's true. And it's a weird balance, it always seems to me, between a sort of aristocratic dream of being a... Every girl wants to be a princess. There are still little girls running around every minute in princess garb. And I think there was an aura about your princesshood and the beauty of the clothes, but also an accessibility, which is the opposite. It's a democratic princess. And it's funny, because I always joke that in fairy tales, which, by the way, I hate. I always hated fairy tales. Really? That's I hate them. They're scary. They're mean. And, but at the, end, at the end of the fairy tale, the girls marry the prince. Well, in my book, it's the beginning of the book. Yes. Yes, and then you went on to do a million other things. And so being, becoming a prince was a detail, really. Yes. But... <laughs> I love that. I don't think it should be a goal, but I think it's I've very... I've actually easy. never said this. I'm so excited when I hear something that I say that I've never said before. I just... <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, I wonder... If, if Coco were here and we asked her about her dissatisfaction... Would she no like me? Oh, I think she'd be a little jealous of you, Diane. She was very competitive with women and had very few women friends. And I always say that fashion is like sports for women. You know, you can go and watch the Met Gala online or on TV and everyone critiques the dresses together like men do on Thanksgiving when they watch football together. It's a bonding thing. It's the way mothers and daughters bond. And you've spoken a lot of your mother in your book. I'm wondering, um, that democratic sort of sisterhood that fashion has is 
in some ways at odds with the aspirational part of having a beautiful dream that appears in Vogue magazine that you can't quite look like. Because let's face it, part of fashion is a little bit feeling like you haven't quite got it right, you know? But so she, how that's do you not, that? That's not what she was about, and that's not what I am about. Where the common ground is that she made clothes that women wanted to wear. She made clothes that were comfortable. She, she brought in jersey. You know, men, jersey. Oh, well, we're only women here, so you all know what jersey is. So almost, jer almost. jersey fabric, you cannot find a male designer who likes jersey fabric. And I understand why, because it, I mean, it's much more beautiful to see a satin duchesse or some beautiful, you know, silk. But women designer really get jersey, always, whether it's Chanel, Madame Vionnet, uh, Madame Gray, uh, Sonia Riquel, Norma Kamali, um, uh, Donna Karen, all women designers understand jersey because it's practical. It feels because good. It feels good. So Chanel's clothes were, and I remember she, I always, I remember her, her saying, or at, at least some, uh, somewhere I heard that she always said, the perfect length is flirter avec le genou, which is flirt with the heel, with the knee. You know, not too short, not too long. And I always say that, I always quote her for that. She, she wanted the woman, I mean, she, she was jealous of certain women, but she want, she liked women. And, and, no. She liked some women. She liked some women. And you know, it's very interesting because I too find the original Chanel, well, we should ask her, really, but she never told the truth completely. Well, first of all, she liked women sexually. She did, indeed. Which, but that was also part of the jealousy so that's factor. that's women. Yes. She appreciated women's bodies. She sculpted clothes on their bodies. But you know, the, the jersey thing is a double-edged sword. I like jersey, jersey feels comfortable, but when Chanel bought jersey, and it was an ignominious fabric, it was just for men's underwear way back mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. she bought it. Um, but the other thing with jersey is that you can't wear a corset under jersey, you can't wear foundation garments. Well, that's the point. Yes, but there were women who felt they needed those things. And suddenly, unless you were quite felt, it was quite difficult to wear these tubes of jersey because uh, the voluptuous beauties of the day, or even not beauties, regular gals who just had uh, more uh, fleshy, curvy figures Never were not... Nevertheless, 100 years later, she's still around. That's exactly it. We have incorporated that look, and it's uh, our fashion ideal now. But she sort of made it popular to be thin and have the corset be your own muscles. There's a fashion historian, Peter Wallen, who says it's called internalizing the corset. So there were people who didn't love it, but then uh, well, adapted anyway. Of, uh, there's plenty of people who snubbed me, too. I mean, I said, what is that? This little nothing, little dress, you know, which was made exactly. I mean, the, the first T-shirt. People don't understand that when I was growing up, there, no, no women wore T-shirt, only sailors. It was T-shirts with sailors' underwear, and then <laughs> right. other men's underwear. And uh, I, I learned everything with this Italian man that I interned with, and he had a printing factory, so I learned everything about printing. And then he had this, this uh, jersey factory, and the reason why he invented this jersey is because his printing plant was getting too small. So he needed more space. So he bought the, pr the, the plant next door. 
The plant next door used to make um, women's nylon uh, hose, and the pantyhose had just been created. So all of a sudden, those hose didn't mean anything. The guys went bankruptcy, and they left the machine. So he looked at these machines, and he said, these machines, what can I do with these machines? And he had the idea of, instead of using very, very thin nylon to make stockings, he called the, um, the how do you call these, yarn companies like Dupont and Znia Viscose and people like that, and he used it with thicker yarn, and he made, and that's how the jersey was created. And so, and he learned, he taught me all of that. So it's Jersey and then print. That's how it happened. When you were on the cover of Newsweek, I remember that Newsweek cover. Were you not? You were eight years old. I was a toddler. No, not at all. <laughs> no, I had a wrap dress in the first generation of wrap dresses, but you were wearing one of them. Were you not in that photograph? Actually, I have an image of you with long no, hair no. And, and green a and white. But if you look very closely, oh, is it, it, not a it was a shirt dress. Ah, okay. My but mistake. nobody knows. But, <laughs> but the wrap dress is as iconic as the little black dress, right? Yes. Um, and the wrap dress reminded me, when I first saw it, of the rehearsal tops dancers wear yes. over their leotards. That's where it and came I, from. I used to dance, and I remember having those with you know, the leg warmers and stuff. And I know that you've done one collection long ago now that you called Goddess Collection, after the robes of uh, dancer Isadora Duncan. That's right. So Chanel, too, as she will agree, uh, was very interested and studied modern dance. And when you talk about jersey, it reminds me of how good it feels to wear it physically on the inside and how you move differently in a wrap dress freely, um, and certain fabrics allow that. Do you think about dance particularly? I know no, Suzanne Farrell's coming next one, week, but that's relevant to me. One of the things that is most important with, for me, and one of the things that is definitely a characteristic of my brand, is body language. Well, let's talk about I that. I love, I mean, body language. You can see how I do with my legs. And, you know, body language is everything. And so I like to give women confidence. And, uh, and so it's either wraps or skirt. I see a wrap dress there. I see a skirt dress there, two of mine. And then, or loose. That's what happens when you get a little older. <laughs> <laughs> what about fashion and the arts, Diane? Um, are fashion designers artists? Chanel used to say, I am not an artist, I'm I am an, not artisan. an artist. Are you saying that? I am oh. not an artist. Okay. I am not an artist, and I never thought I would be an artist. One day, Christian Lacroix told me, he said, men designers make costume, women designers make clothes. And I make clothes. I never, ever thought I would, I was an artist. I never thought I was even making a fashion statement in a sense. And yet, 40 years later, last year when I, I, I saw the exhibition, I said, I didn't make a fashion statement, but I ended up making a sociological statement. So that was much more important. So my goal is the woman. I, my role in fashion is 
I am the friend in the closet. <laughs> you wake up in the morning, your eyes are swollen, you have your period, not me anymore. But anyway, <laughs> you have your period, you don't feel well, you go for your friend and you feel secure. You go in, you wrap it, you don't feel that great, but oh. over the day you feel better and better. Oh, wait so, a minute. I want to talk about wrapping. Okay. Um, you speak about the friend in the closet and wrapping. It really is beginning to sound like a friendship, like another person, like a hug. The dress. Well, the dress you literally wrap yourself yes, up yes, in it. Yes, but it's really a tool. It's only a tool to look better, to feel better, for confidence. It's, it's, it, it has to be effortless, sexy, and on the go. Well, I remember those three, and I agree with you, but you will agree that a lot of designs, not yours, but many designers are far from effortless. And it's an enormous undertaking, even in the supposedly free, sleek look. Well, that's can be why I'm still around. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. But you know... And so is she. And she's still around. Um, there are a lot of people who would like to look like you. And Not there, anymore. Yes, and I've noticed, and I, well, I have noticed that the ad campaign that you have has a, at least one model, if not a few, who are reminiscent of you, who have sort of pre-Raphaelite curls and the look. And I'm wondering, how does it feel to be someone who is copied and emulated out on the street all over the world? How do you feel about that? Do you feel um, proud of it? Do you feel invested in it, or is it an accidental side effect of your career? It, it, it started as an accident because I, I didn't have enough, um, you know, I didn't want to spend on the model, and I remember I was doing an ad for Bloomingdale's, and we couldn't find an ad or whatever, and the buyer said, well, why don't you do it? Oh, okay, why don't I do it? And then I did it. And then another one, and another one. And then as I was, I said, maybe I'm a little older now. And no, they still want me. Um, I mean, I, I've done, you know, I still did a cover of a magazine recently. And I just say, I mean, enough. I mean, it's not... Is it not that, fun? No, no, no. Well, it's not fun, but especially not fun when you're, you're older. But Wait. I just became... Listen, I became my own, I went into this a little bit by accident, and I wanted to, I, I did not know what I wanted to do, but I knew the kind of woman I wanted to be. I wanted to be uh, liberated, I wanted to be free, I wanted to be financially independent. Fashion happened to be my door. At that time, I don't know why, because I met this man, he had a factory, whatever, that was my door. I went into it, and I was very lucky. I came to this country, and I lived an American dream. Well, can we talk about that? Because you are from Europe, and you came to America, and you live the American dream, as you say. And I think somehow being foreign is important to this story, feeling from another place. Even though Chanel was French, she always said she felt foreign in her own country. And in her case, it was because she was from the most abject poverty. 
Her family was gone by the time she was 12. She lived completely deracinated, apart from family, nothing, no sustenance, no money. And she always felt, even when she became very successful, that she was an outsider, and she wanted very much to create a self that would fit in. You didn't have that situation, but you were from somewhere else. And you say in your book, Diane wrote a, a sentence in her book that just sort of hit me on the head because it was almost verbatim something Chanel had said. You said, I came with a suitcase full of Jersey dresses. And Chanel said about her arrival in Paris from the provinces, I had nothing but a suitcase full of dresses. And both of them are talking about what's relevant here is suitcase, right? That you take yourself with you and you can sort of reconstruct it well, from dresses. Well, the one thing we certainly have in common is that we were our own ancestors. Wow. Okay. Same more that, that we we invented ourselves. Yeah. And I now when I talk to young women, I always say, and when my granddaughters, I have two granddaughters. One is going to be 16 tomorrow, and the other one's 15. Uh, I say, when you go to sleep at night, first you should say thank you for what you have, and then you have to think about the woman you want to be, because if you think it, you will be it. And I really, really mean that, and I really feel that, and the older I am, the more I feel it. And that's my message, and, and that's why I got into fashion. And then, oh, that's why we were saying, I got into fashion, and then I started a dialogue with women. And as I became more confident, I was selling, I was going all around you know, the country, doing personal appearances, and selling confidence through that dress to other women. So they gave me confidence, and I gave them confidence. And so there was this extraordinary dialogue that, that, that started with me and women. And, and then, because people looked at me and they say, who is this? So then some people would write, you know, journalists would write, they would write about how they felt about me. And so I felt like I had to say how I feel about me. And then I became very open, you know, I was, I was then getting divorced, and I talked about it, and a single mother, and all of these things. And I became, I, I spoke the truth, and therefore the, the dialogue continued. Well, this is something quite unlike Chanel, who never told a single true story about her past. That's true. Um, and I, I, I can't help going back to I am my own ancestor, because you talk very frankly about your mother's story and being Jewish and um, the pain and the suffering she went through in order to, you know, have a, a renaissance of her life and, and have you and, and have you have this amazing life. There's a kind of pain in, in the backstory of your life and it is balanced by a very beautiful but force afterward. Chanel too started in a lot of pain, but she couldn't own it. No, she couldn't but admit she also, uh, um, I, I, I don't remember. I mean, I always think you don't remember pain. You don't, pain, you know, you have a terrible headache, and then it's gone, and then you barely remember it. Um, and my mother taught me that. I mean, she didn't want to, she, she was completely delusional in the death camp. And as a result, she survived. You I think that was the secret? Well, I don't know what it was, but it was, she refused to say, she used to say to me, you know, they used to, smell, you know, the, the, the gas chamber and everything, and, and all the friends say, look, we're going to die. My mother said, no, we're not going to die. Or to me, she would say, me, the Germans, I looked at them in the eyes. 
And, you know, she never, no matter what happened, she never wanted to be a victim. And, and she, that's inside me, and that's inside her, too. She did not want well, right, to be a victim. Well, right, that's the pain that doesn't go away but gets transformed into but, something else. But, you, but it's not about the pain. Yes, it's about... It's about that, it's, It becomes fuel. Yeah. It becomes gasoline. But can we talk... It's <laughs> interesting. Can we talk about ethnicity in the fashion world? Can we talk about the tradition of foreigners coming and bringing a new look and what it means to feel like an outsider who then creates a look that everybody aspires to? I think it's very powerful to come from another place and have a, a style that a whole country, America, wanted to embrace this look, and it became an American look, yes. um, which is extraordinary. And Chanel, although she obviously started her career in France, after her exile for those nefarious activities and other things, 12, 14 years in Switzerland, she came back, as you know. You've called yourself the comeback kid. Chanel had a very she similar was. phrase. She came back, but she came back via New 73. York. In her 70s. I haven't gotten there yet. Well, you don't need to. You've made a comeback uh, brilliantly. But she did it via America. And what was amazing was that this French, ultra-French woman managed to convince us all that hers was the uniquely American look. And she went around the disapproval of France and wound up seeming more American than Americans. And in a way, you've done the same. You are a, a very American spirit. That, that DVF girl that you describe, who's on the go, who's free, who's independent, that's our idea of the American young woman, don't you think? How do you feel about bridging Europe and America with fashion? Well, I think that to be a European in America is a huge advantage. Paul? <laughs> Huge. And uh, so, I mean, for me, it was great to be European. I mean, it was an asset. It was just like being a woman. I mean, for me, well, being a woman is an asset. Uh, in my life, it was. Uh, but, and to be American. But the thing is funny is that, yes, in, I am, I've become an American designer, but in, in, in Russia, they say, oh, it's so great for Russian women. Brazilian, it's so Brazilian. I mean, so it's, it's very, I think it's very new, universal for me and for her because it's, it's, because it's about woman. It's about woman. Chanel was an essence of a woman. And she won, I always said, I want, when I was a young girl, I want a man's life in a woman's body. And uh, both of us did that. That is exactly what Chanel had and did at a time when nobody was doing That's that. Right. But you know, your styles are actually very different. Her style was more androgynous, was very solid color, very muted colors. And look at you tonight, you have this explosion of a beautiful print. Um, in some ways, your style is much more feminine. Um, do you think about that? Do you have uh, an interest in the more androgynous styles that a Chanel no, did? That's no, not you, right? No, I don't like androgynous. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But can we go back to what you were saying about aging? I don't aging? like girly either. Female. Female. Okay. Well, what about getting older and fashion? You said that you don't, you know, you're too old now to model for it, but of course that's not true. And I know, I talk to a lot of women, I've done fashion consulting work, and a lot of women express sadness about aging out of the category well, when they can have this pleasure. What do you have to say about that? Well, first of all, 
the great thing about aging is that you're aging. I mean, a <laughs> aging means that opposite. you're living. I mean, so yes, I am aging every single day. And I'm happy about that. So aging is, and already by having age, that means that you've already lived. So you have a past. And if you, the most important thing is that you like your past, then aging is fine. So it all goes to the point to all the young girls here. You have to live fully every day. And you have to do what you want to do. I mean, and, uh, and if, you, if you are accountable for who you are every day, then when you look back, you will like your past. But what about what to wear and how to look pretty? <laughs> and no, I'm not. I, I wish I were kidding more. But I, I think about this, and I think that there are a lot of women in the audience who would probably like to hear you address uh, more specifically how to play with the dream that is fashion and beauty no, and I, seduction I, and still age okay. appropriately. Okay, first of all, the most important thing is that you have your own style. The earlier you have your own style, it's you. I mean, it doesn't mean it's about style, it's about you. It's about how, what you like about yourself and what you don't like about yourself. You have a waist, you show it. You have this, you don't show it. Whatever, you have good legs, you show them. I mean, every, you know, <laughs> that's really what determines your style. And, and your personality, and you have good hair or whatever. So if you have your style, then you really kind of age into your style. And then, you know, you, certain things you stop doing, or certain things you do less of, but it's your style. I mean, I see pictures of me when I was 13. I always had a gold bracelet. I always had, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it, it was my style. I haven't changed. So you don't think about the age of the woman you're designing for? Is it no. universal age? Well, some things are better for younger than, you know, of course. No, I think the women dress around three things. One thing is the morphology, right? You have a, you have a, a waist, you have good arm. I mean, you know, I always say wraps, it's good if you have a waist. And maybe a little bit of shape. Uh, scout, you like to, you, you work out, you like to show your arm, you have a good ass, scout. And then otherwise it's flow, you know, so women go to, they go, to, they think of their morphology on how they change things, on they choose things. And then is what you do, how do you want to project yourself? I joke, I have these three little characters, fictionist characters, and because I am DVF, they're called Diva, Viva, and Fifa. <laughs> and Diva, she is a working woman. She is in the boardroom. She assesses herself. You know, she is powerful. Then you have Diva. She's a little bit more artsy. She doesn't need to get dressed to work. She either is a singer or an artist. And so, you know, she's a little bit more casual. And then you have Fifa. She's the suburban mom. And Isn't that the so soccer association? She is, you know, in, <laughs> she is in her leggings all day, and then she gets dressed or whatever. But the truth is that most women today are a little bit of diva, viva, and fifa. 
All of them. Well, those are stories. So those are narrative stories about different kinds of women. And something I like to do is ask people to take an object of clothing when I've done consulting work or when I've talked to people about fashion. And women love to tell a story about objects of clothing, and they seem to contain stories. Do you have objects in your wardrobe or things you've designed that have particular stories that you think of when you design them or when you wear them? Well, I can tell you that we collect rap stories because okay, everywhere great. I go, everywhere I go, I found my husband, I got, re I got my first job, I did this, I did that. Everybody has a rap story. Everybody. And some are very unusual. For example, when I met the actress Anne Hathaway, she introduced me to her mother. And when she introduced me to her mother, her mother said, well, I'm going to tell you something that even my daughter doesn't know. And I said, what? She said, well, she, um, I seduced her father in a wrap dress. <laughs> and as a matter of fact, I may ha have conceived her in it. So, so it was unwrapped. And then she said, the funny thing is, and then Anne said to her mother, is that the one with the tulips? So she, she has knew. the dress. She, she knew. knew. She, it's incredible. That's fantastic. But what about prints? You have tulips, but one of your most popular is the chain link print. And yeah, somebody's to, wearing it right there. On the, I wanted on. to ask about that particular print because, of course, the chain link belt is a very Chanel-esque accessory. But you have a picture of a chain link. You're wearing a chain link bracelet. But a print that is a picture of a jewelry accessory, I think is very interesting. How did you come up with that, and why is that one of your signature pieces? This, my chain link, was my very, very, very first print that I did. And it is the dress that I wear in the cube, my very first um, little announcement that I made in Women's Wear Daily. And uh, I had to make an announcement, so I, I wore this chain link. It was a show dress. And I sat, a friend of mine took the picture, and I sat on a white cube. And then when I saw the picture, and to put the little announcement in Women's Wear Daily, the white cube was so big, so I said I should write something in it. And with it, without even thinking, I wrote, feel like a woman, wear a dress. And I signed my name. And that picture, that print, that message has stayed with me for 42 years. And it's crazy, because for a while it had disappeared. I mean, I, the chain link was reissued because I was in Sao Paulo for something, and, and somebody had taken that print and put it on the wall, and I said, I mean, it's, it's, it's very just, modernist, and even the picture of you on the cube suggests that, I too. I know. So and it's it, graphic. It, and it really goes to show you that that first moment, the first juice, your first book, the first movie, the first whatever, is really usually the essence of what you stand for. That's why I tell my students never to change anything they write. The first time is usually the truest. The first time is the truest. Diane, you've described yourself as a lifestyle designer. And I think that on the first level, that means that you design more than just dresses. You've designed accessories and scarves, and you have perfumes and so forth. But I somehow think it's more than just the universe of products, right? I think it's about a lifestyle. Do you think about that when you design an individual garment? Or what is it 
exactly to be a lifestyle designer? And are there others that you admire or I don't dislike know. a lot? I actually, as my press release says, a lifestyle designer. Oh, so that's I don't not think you? I, no, yes, but although I've never used that myself. Um, uh, but, but, it's def but I really think I, when, when I design anything I design, it has to be all the things, it has to be effortless, sexy on the go, it has to be functional, it has to be um, uh, solution driven, it has to be. I always think of the woman. I, I, I mean, that's it. I just want to give tools to women so that they could be themselves. But isn't it I the love universe? It when, I love it, sorry. I love it when I see women who wear things completely different. That, you know, like in my book, for example, in this, The Journey of the Dress, the big book, I show Amy Winehouse who, uh, uh, on, a, on a picture with a wrap dress two weeks before she overdosed of heroin. And the next page is Michelle Obama. And it's the same dress. I love that. <laughs> Wow. Um, no, 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 that's just incredible. That juxtaposition has me reeling for the moment. Um, I was going to ask what the, what the lifestyle would be, but I think I get what you're saying. But you say these are tools for women to be themselves, and they are. Um, and Chanel said, and, and if you visit the, the house of Chanel and you talk to the executives there, they all say, Chanel allows the woman to be herself. Okay. You put it on and you, and you instantly express yourself. But the weird thing about fashion to me is always that it's two completely contradictory things. Fashion is about self-expression, democratic, free, free uh, artistic expression, and yet it's also about fitting in, isn't it? It's about the tools you need so that you are appropriate at the workplace, you look right at the party, you look like what people are wearing this year. How do you reconcile no, this I, contradiction? No for, no, for me, I don't, no? I don't see it like to fit in. It's, to, it's tools to project yourself how you want to project yourself. You wake up in the morning, you think, where am I going? And then you say, oh, okay, I'm going there. I, I dress one way. Or I'm working all day in the sample room. Then I dress one way. It's, it's, it's tools. It's, it's not about... I've never been about follow the trend. Fashion, you see, is more... First of all, fashion is a huge industry, and we know that. But other than that, it's... Mm, it's l'air du temps. It's, you don't know why all of a sudden young girls start wearing combat boots and, and it happens in the street. It never uh, starts at... I mean, the, the designers are inspired by the streets. The designers are inspired by what's going on. It's, 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 it's something... I mean, there's, there's fashion in food, there's fashion in, in homes, in architecture. I mean... So you don't see any... Um, constraints in fashion because I can I, I know just for me I'm not always as confident as that sometimes I think what do I wear to be on stage with Diane von Furstenberg for example um, and that she's wasn't wearing so, a leather dress I wore leather I didn't know what to wear um, but but I'm not always perfectly sure and fashion is sometimes helpful because it gives you an array of yes. things that are suitable yes. for that moment yes. so you said I need to be tough so I, I go for leather <laughs> Maybe that was it. Um, she wore the, you know, the shoes. It's shoes, but it's really a boot. I mean, she went on. She came in as a warrior. I don't, I don't think of myself as a warrior. Maybe that's why no, subconsciously I dressed um, as one. But you mentioned, if this is one, bracelets. Um, 
you mentioned Michelle Obama, and I'm very interested in politics and fashion and how women in politics dress, but also the politics of fashion. Do you think fashion is political? Do you watch what internationally women are wearing who are not uh, supposed to be fashion plates, but are nonetheless constantly in the public eye and represent government, nations? Yes, but I mean, you know, who cares? I mean, the point is that when, <laughs> when, when, uh, when women are in government and everything, you, you care about what they do and it's their personality and it's, it's I mean, they're not particularly fashion inspiring. I mean, in a weird way, you see, you know, you see, you know, huge poverty in Africa, and you see these extraordinary women, refugee going from one place to the next in Somalia, and they have children and this and that, and they look so elegant, and the colors, and the look, and everything. And I feel almost, I, I feel, I feel guilty. How can I be inspired by this picture? But these women, the dignity of these women in Africa, that's inspiring. Oh, yeah, I think there's nothing wrong with being inspired from everywhere. But, you know, we do watch political women, even if we're, it's sometimes considered inappropriate to see what Senator, uh, Secretary of State Clinton is wearing. We are, in the newspaper, policy is right next to what she was wearing if it's a woman in question. I know, right? but that's really demeaning. I mean, who cares? I mean, frankly. <laughs> I mean, you know... It, it's just, it's, I mean, you know, that she wears, it doesn't matter, it's about the substance. I couldn't agree more, but do they ever, do you ever get calls from prominent women who want advice on how to dress for public occasions? Well, Nancy Pelosi called me the other day because she wanted some money. And <laughs> and, she, and she said, you know, I, I, I tried this dress, and it was, it was one of your dresses, and it was wonderful, but I thought maybe I was too old for it, and she went on See? and on and on about it. What did you tell Nancy Pelosi? But I said, okay, I, what do you want? You wanted money. <laughs> <laughs> I love Nancy Pelosi. I love her. And she's a beautiful woman, and she's a full, complete woman. She has a wonderful family, wonderful husband, everything else, and I'm very, and she was the speaker of the house, and I love her, and I give her money every time. Bravo. You know, there have been a lot of movies about the life of Coco Chanel, and we were discussing backstage uh, several movies about Yves Saint Laurent. I don't know of a movie about DVF. If there is one, or one in the works, how would you imagine it? Would you want a hand in it? Do you want to work on it, consult well, on it's casting? It's funny that you mentioned. I had a lot of requests. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's, my life is a movie. Well, precisely. It's very cinematic. Your so I live it every day. You wouldn't, you're not particularly interested in seeing that? I don't know. We'll see. We'll okay. see what happens. Okay. Well, I think that soon we can take questions from the audience. Um, I can't really see anything, so uh, there you are. Um, and there are mics. Can somebody advise us on how this is to be I, Do you think that she, there's something that she would have liked to say that oh, we didn't talk about? I mean, we want to pay her respect. I think we flat, I mean, I think, do you think there's anything, what, what would she think? Uh, would she like me? Probably not. Maybe yes. 
In fact, when I was young, she may have. Um, I think she would say that she was the pioneer for this sort of career. Yes, I and think I would, she would take credit for and having... And I would give her the credit. You would give her that credit. Absolutely. But I then I think she'd be a little competitive. Um, I often think that she and I would not be particular friends either. It's very strange to have lived with her in my life for seven years and uh, feel no, that you, she's you, mad at me. You, but you didn't. You didn't judge her and you were very fair. And I think, I think of all the books that were written about her, she would probably like yours best. Oh, well, gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, thank you. I hope, I hope that's true because I didn't want to judge. And I think she'd be very proud to have her own empty seat because she considered herself um, a spirit in the making. She said, no one ever dies. Everyone who well, has she passed... she didn't. That's right. And she was willing that into, into truth when she said it. She believed people passed over into another spirit world and were all still among them. And so it's very suitable, I think, that we have... But she would have never become who she was if she didn't go to the nunneries. No, that's the true. The nuns, her, the life, convent orphanage. her life in the convent was the most formative. And that's where she learned aesthetic. That's where she learned discipline. That's where she learned how to sew. And that's where she saw career women. Yeah. She was so from I think, a peasant I family. Think what, what really formed her was that. But that's not true for you. No, I didn't <laughs> go to the convent. <laughs> Ritual, black and white mosaic, the chain link belt. Uh, and also it's worth mentioning that when she was an extremely poor uh, orphan, she was so poor she was one of the serving girls for the other poor orphans. And there was a special uniform that the most poor children had to wear. They were called le, les nécessiteuses, the needy girls. And that uniform was a little black dress. And so I think it's very suitable. Absolutely. Uh, I love that. I you love see, it. That, that's what I love. That's why I rejoice for her. I rejo when, when I read about all of that, and then I said, and now, 100 years later, she, it's still around. It's, that, that, that was her vengeance, and that's what I like. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Okay, we've paid her enough respect. <laughs> We're going to ask you to come up to the mic, and in my experience, you can ask a question in about 52 seconds, and we, we would encourage you to ask a, a good question. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Speaking of the importance of mothers, I would love to get my mother one of your dresses, but she's a size 18. Would you consider, please, making larger size dresses? Oh, people always ask me that. Get her scarf. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I mean, it's very difficult for me, you know, because it's so body conscious and I, I can... But I'm, I don't know, I don't know what to say. But I make beautiful scarves. So I have a question. As women, we, we care about the next generation. It's kind of like who we are. And uh, the nature of fashion is quite ephemeral. And I was wondering if you have been thinking in your business about sustainability and how to adapt your business to 
you know, planetary boundaries and the fact that we might run out of resources. Yes, and uh, it's as a president, as you may or may not know, I'm president of the CFDA, and uh, sustainability is something that we're really, you know, bringing more and more into, and uh, it's a responsibility that we have to have. And uh, the one thing I will tell you as far as DVF and sustainability is a dress you bought 40 years ago. You could sell on eBay for as much money as you can do then. <laughs> or, uh, so it's sustainable. <laughs> Good evening, everyone, and good evening. Um, this is more of a personal question, but I think it relates to, it could possibly relate to some folks in the room. Um, I've strived very hard in life to start my career very early in the federal government working in disaster recovery. Um, you know, I've pretty much gone through the ranks of building my career, but I, I want to start something new. I've always wanted to start my own business. I have that idea, but I've noticed that I find myself sitting in that idea over the years. Um, so I'm going on literally three years of sitting on an idea that I would love to start. Um, I've noticed that as I get older. How old you, are you? I'm 28. Oh. <laughs> I know. I know. Go back. Go back and I know. sit. I know. <laughs> I know. It's funny because I get a lot but of ageism. It's good. It's good. I get it's a lot good. of ageism on the okay, job. Just because I can I'm tell you, I field. don't even want to know what you want to do. I yeah. know you will succeed. Because for you to come here and you said, mm -hmm. I'm, as I'm good old, I want to change. I've mm -hmm. already been thinking about three years what I want to do. Yeah. Do it. You're yeah. only 28. Thank you. Okay. Go for it. I appreciate it. Thank be you. Be the woman you want to be. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, um, it's amazing to hear you talk. Um, I only discovered you really um, through your DVF TV show. Um, I'm from London, as you can probably tell. Um, and it was very interesting to watch. Um, you're such a big voice for women and women power. And I'm just wondering, is there, is there any particular qualities about women that you don't like? Any kind of women I don't like? Any quality that a woman has that you're not impressed with, or sometimes that annoys you? <laughs> What I, 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 I usually say that I have never met a woman who is not strong. All women are strong. But more often than not, they don't show their strength. Sometimes it's because of a brother, a father, a religion, circumstances, but most of it is they, don't, they are afraid to show their strength. And then tragedy happens. And then all of a sudden, they take over. The strength comes out. It's always women who make it happen. So the only thing I would say to women is don't be afraid of your own strength. It's there. It's very nice. I like that. I think, by the way, that Chanel would have approved of the television. Uh, yes, work. and I, I think she would have approved of a lot of things about me. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> There's someone else. Hi. Um, so I'm just at the very start of my career. But I was just wondering, if you could go back to your 20s, what advice would you give to yourself, both in terms of fashion and your career? It's funny. People ask me that question all the time. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much the same person I was then. I so remember how 
it was when I was, when I was that age that what I would just say to myself, go for it and be your best friend, which is basically what I did tell myself. So I am very lucky to have had a very good relationship with myself early. And that has helped me enormously. Thank you so much, and thanks for your time. Thank you. I interviewed a 14-year-old girl who is at Andover. She's a friend of a friend of mine, and she asked. She was doing a, a, um, a magazine for the school, and she was doing it on women. Would I be her first person that she could interview? And so she interviewed me on the phone on Sunday. And at the end, she said, well, what advice do you give me? And I said, remember to wink at yourself. And she's 14. <laughs> so I said, do you understand what I'm saying? She said, well, not really. <laughs> I said, you know, when you go to the bathroom at night and you see yourself in the mirror, say hi. <laughs> you know, wink at yourself. So she may not know what I'm doing, but if she that. does it, yeah. it'll be good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I like that. First of all, I'll be buying both of your books without having intended to when I first arrived, so thank Fabulous. you. Fabulous. Um, but my question is for Diane, many years from now when none of us are here anymore and people are still talking about you, what do you want people to say or what do you hope they say? I hope they say that my little contribution in fashion or, or in the world, because, you know, I'm involved in mentoring and philanthropy, was to tell women that they can be the woman they want to be. I mean, that's what I would like to be remembered as. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Sahar, and I had a two-part question, actually. What book that you've read influenced you the most and why? And also, everybody has an aha moment. What was yours? What's an aha moment? <laughs> <laughs> an aha moment is like when you said the light bulb suddenly went off and you realized something profound. An epiphany. An epiphany. An epiphany of sorts. I, 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 are you allowed to have them all the time? <laughs> There's usually one substantial one. <laughs> it seemed like I have a lot of epiphanies. Well, what was your first that I don't you can know. recall? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I can't think of anything. And what was the other question? Uh, the most, in, the book that you've read that has influenced you the most. Oh, oh. oh there's why. so many books. There's so many books. Um, I mean, I, 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 I don't know, there's so, I, I, I love to read, I mean, I love to read. Um, I'm not very good at answering your question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can get back to us later, okay. though. Thank you. Rhonda and Diane, thank you very much. This has been very interesting. And I notice there are a few men in the audience. Sorry. <laughs> um, so I loved what you said about uh, fashion for women being about, in a sense, empowerment, realization. And I'm wondering if you think that fashion is something different for men. Of course, they need different tools 
to make it in the world? And is it a different thing? No, I think it's also about what you project, how you project yourself. Um, it's simpler for a man, but then by the same token, it's a little sadder. You know, you can't, play, <laughs> you can't play with colors the way we can and all of that. But, you know, I, I, I really try not to compare men and women because we're such different animals. So I think... Can I follow up for Rhonda? Politically, do you think it's a different thing? I do. Um, I like to remind people of something fashion historians call the Great Male Renunciation, which happened in the uh, late 18th, early 19th century, because before, men did play with That's color. Right. They, did, they were the peacocks of the group and had fabulous right. pattern and color available to I mean, men of a certain social class. And then with the Industrial Revolution, men started wearing sober suits, and it was women who exploded in the pageant of fashion, and it's stayed that way ever since. And so it's the people who have the functional power who can disappear and just be functional, and it's the, you know, the, uh, the display element of women's lives that we call fashion. It's a double-edged sword. I really sometimes wish I could wear a three-piece suit and a tie and call it a day and just seem powerful and not have to make a thousand decisions around it. But it is more fun. Diana's right. But it is true. Animals, animals, male animals yeah. are much more colorful. Yeah. Lions, yeah. men, that's so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate your all's time. Um, Sam, both you and Coco have such amazing pasts, and you draw from that. But I'm a very firm believer that your best days are in front of you and not behind you. Aww. So what is... <laughs> I, I do. Um, so what is, um, what is next for you personally? What, what are you looking forward to? And as far as your brand goes, what, what are you looking well, forward to next? as far as my brand and my business life, I, I feel I've had three periods. The first period was American Dream, and then I sold everything and lost everything, and then I started again. It was Comeback Kid. And now it's, now it's legacy. You know, now it's what I'm going to leave behind, and it's kind of put it all in order, make sure it's coherent, it makes sense. And mm -hmm. So it's a, different, it's a different time. But it's, it's, it's always a challenge, but it's always fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. We will take four more questions. Mine is two parts, so I hope I don't take up the two out of the four. <laughs> Hi, Diane. My Hi. name is Adiola. Um, my first question for you is, um, you said pain um, is something that you don't really feel. It turns into fuel. Uh, what, was, what was one of the most, I guess, monumental moments in your life that fueled your passion or fueled your career? Well, I, it's not that I don't feel pain. As I said, I don't remember pain. But you do feel pain at the moment. Um, you know, I have written my diary all my life, and, and it has helped me because I didn't really go into psychoanalysis. And uh, so I have all these diaries, and if I read and I open any of them, I'm always at the turning point of my life. So it feels like I've done nothing but turning all my life. Um, and, and, and at the end, you know, life is that. It's like it's day after day after day after day. 
and, and when you are at the top of your success, or from, for everybody else, maybe that day you feel terribly insecure, and, and, but everybody looks at you like you know everything. And some other times, everybody thinks you're over, but you know you're already up. You know, so it's really, and we go back to the biography versus autobiography. One way, one thing is the way people see you, and the other way, and the other thing is how you feel. And, and when you live your life, it's like a journey, you know, you go in a journey and the landscape changes and people come in and people go out and there it rains and then it's beautiful. Things change, but they change constantly. It never stops. It's not, oh, I'm happy. Stop. No, <laughs> it doesn't happen that way. Or, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm unhappy. Stop. Nothing stops. I mean, my train happens to be a bullet train, but, you know, <laughs> it, it's, um, so life goes you have challenges every day, at, on your best day and on your worst day. And uh, just live it the best way you can and, and be true to yourself. Okay. Um, my second question is, in uh, one of your previous interviews, you said one of the things that your mother told you is fear is not an option. Uh, what is the most fearless thing you've done, whether it's career-related or personal life-related, that you can remember at the moment? I think uh, the, the most fearless thing I did was uh, rafting in Africa. Oh. Okay. All right. It's a good one. All right. Thank you. I was very proud. Hi, I'm Nadine. I'm from Toronto. Um, I've been reflecting on everything that you've talked about today, and I think the biggest surprising concept that I've arrived at is your concept about using clothes as tools is almost <clears throat> about democratizing fashion and it's about making it not something on a pedestal but it's something that you can use and it doesn't matter if you can afford you know the highest name brand or the lowest as long as it reflects your style so I think that's something that I'd like to take with me and share with friends and family um, but I'm asked I guess I'm curious to know if you think that fashion if fashion were to really become totally democratized would it hold the place that it does in our society and like viewpoint? Because, you know, like you were mentioning, we watched the Met and it, there's something about having fashion be, you know, regarded and put on a pedestal that makes it special. No, but it's many things. I mean, I'm not saying, you know, first of all, not everybody can afford everything because you use a fabric and you embroider it and this and that. So, and you have some things that are more expensive than others. But what I think is democratized is you can choose what you want mm -hmm. or what you can, you know, you can afford. So, um, but yes, you have to desire it. You have to desire it. And it's a challenge for a designer that every month, you know, you, mm -hmm. all the time you have to, do, and if you do great things that last, I mean, as I said, my dresses last for so long. So how do you make it better? How, if you're already in her closet, how do you make it more desirable, mm -hmm. you know? So that's where colors come in. That's where little details come in. That's where, you know, whimsical comes in. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough industry. And There's it's a great book uh, by a guy named Gilles Lipovetsky, Fashion and Democracy, a French guy who decided that fashion really was democratic at heart, that it's not elitist, that it's not about 
it being expensive. And it's sort of the spirit that you're talking about. I like him because he, uh, he sort of agrees with you in this idea that it's not supposed to be oppressive. You can aspire fairly with justice. Yeah, because that concept of oppressive, I think you were mentioning, is what do I wear today? Or I'm looking around the street, am I as fashionable as everybody else? But if you could neutralize that, it would really like put women in a different perspective. Sorry, I think it's you. also worth mentioning that to remember who's making the fashion, where yeah. they're making it, what their working conditions are, and what real oppression can be sometimes sure. is also, mm. you know, uh, there's more and more people talking about this, and it's such a good, good thing to remember. Yeah, it's really humbling. Thank you. Paul is walking around. Does that mean something? No, we have three more. Okay. I'll keep it brief. Um, you spoke to the importance of being your own best friend, and it was also said today that Coco Chanel didn't keep very many female friends, but I think one of the best things about being a woman is that we can have such close relationships with other women. Can you speak to how other women have helped you become the woman that you wanted to be? I have a lot of men friends, too. <laughs> um, but... Yeah, a friendship and love is, is more important than anything. And, uh, and I have many, many friends. She, but she did have a lot of friends. She had people whose style she, she loved and absorbed, and they would be best, best friends and then enemies, and then best friends, and then she had frenemies. You know. <laughs> so I think friends are very important. I think love, I mean, you know, one of the things I say all the time and that's, is love is life is love. At the end, that's all that matters. Thank you. Uh, what type of qualities or traits do you look for when you hire people for your team? Um, I like people to be passionate. Um, I'm not a very good hirer. Um, I like people who are passionate and clear. I think clarity is super important. I, th like, I think it's very important to use words properly because if you use pro words properly, it explains the kind of brain that you have. So I think clarity and, um, yes, clarity is very important. Noted. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, Diane. Um, I read your book last February, I guess, through your words. And my seven-year-old daughter, who is here, read it through your pictures. And I think she, she knows your story very well. Um, she was very keen on me coming to ask you a question, and I think my question will be, how do you, on this world that is so judgmental now, and so uh, educating the kids in so many classes and in a box, how do you suggest to a mom and to a little kid who is here to sustain their, credibility, their creativity and to continue dreaming about sometime becoming the woman they want to be? So what's your advice for a little kid? For a little kid? Yeah. Think about the woman you want to be every night when you go to sleep, and you will become it. Okay. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook. And sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.